Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. If we think about why we do journey mapping, one of the big reasons is to alleviate blind spots within the team. Once we map out the journey, we start to see, oh, we have all these ways that we interact or could interact with our customers and all of those things to find the experience. So we ended up going up to this forest near us. We got environmentally friendly and we reversed it into a tree stump, okay? And then we phoned the insurance company and the first question they said was, what's your policy number? That was the very first question. The point I'm making is what people say and do evoke emotions. And therefore, to make it not a soft and fluffy thing, you need to recognize that. So Ryan, you know how important continuous improvement is? I know that in theory. I mean, I, I think that I've kind of peaked. <laughs> but yeah, for other people, for sure. For sure. So you're now embracing the theory of continuous decline, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going for peak optimal permanent performance, but yeah, all right, if we're honest, yeah. <laughs> this show is coming out in January. Is this sort of, you've done your New Year's resolution and you're starting to decline already, is that right? Yeah, the New Year's resolution was just keep on keeping on. Um, <laughs> what's the plan? Yeah, this is as good as it's going to get. <laughs> it's all down here from now. <laughs> we all live with it, the end. So the good news is that I believe in continuous improvement. <laughs> And one of the improvements that we've made is that when we do the shows called I'm in a Pickle, where audience members send us uh, their pickle, mm -hmm. we can now record the audience member telling us what their problem is. And this is the first time that we've done it. I'm excited about that. Yeah. So here we have Anna from Finland, who is going to tell us about the pickle that she's in. Uh, let's hear from Anna. Hi, Colin and Ryan. I'm in a pickle. How do you operationalize your journey mapping? We are in a process of defining our customer experience framework and we'll start by mapping the customer journeys throughout the life cycle. We really want to use those findings to change the organization more customer centric and make the process continuous and operational. We don't want CX to become some fluffy thing that is not practical enough. Therefore, we want practical steps on how to get started the right way. Thank you. Okay, so let's see if we can help Anna. Anna, thank you for that. Before we do, though, I should mention I'm a little intimidated by how good Anna's recording sounded. Like, she was really <laughs> polished there. As an amateur podcaster myself, I'm, I'm feeling a little threatened uh, by her performance. Listen, mate, you, I know you're into this continuous improvement, but um, <laughs> at least you're not doing it from your minivan, which you were doing a few episodes ago, which yes, was uh, well, really good. Hey, we, we can call that improvement. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing it. 
We've got a great post-production team that made you sound good. Yes. Thank you, Anna, for calling in. Those of you that want to do the same, by the way, all you need to do is to go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash pickle. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash pickle. And there you will see a record button. Just record your pickle, send it to us. We'll deal with it just like we're just about to deal with Anna's. And if you could make yours sound less polished and poised than Anna's did, that would that would just be good for my ego. I'm sure you can give him some tips on that, mate. <laughs> on how to be less, <laughs> on how to improve less. That's anti-improvement. That's what we're going to call. I've broken Anna's pickle down into a few subjects. A few slices. Yeah, a few slices. Yeah, slicing the pickle. I love this pickle analogy. So there's so much rich information you can gain in and analogies. I think there are about four things here. So I want to talk a bit about, first of all, Anna obviously talked about how to operationalize journey mapping. The first thing I wanted to say with this is, and I don't think this is the case necessarily with you, Anna, but one of the reasons we've chosen your pickle is because I think it's appropriate for other people on a similar journey to you. The danger is that people consider journey mapping to be the answer Mm. when it's only part of the answer or it's an enabler to the answer. It's not the answer to life, universe and everything. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's a bit like Net Promoter. You know, I, I again, and we've obviously had Fred Reicheld on the show, uh, the inventor of Net Promoter a little while ago. We've, we had a pickle come in about Net Promoter as well. The danger is that people think Net Promoter's the answer to life, the universe and everything. And none of these things are. You need to look at these things in the round. So how to operationalize your journey mapping? Well, the, the first thing I would say is that and we've been doing this for 20 years, you need to look at four aspects of the customer journey. So you need to look at the rational aspects of your customer journey. So in other words, what is your customer doing? And ideally, you would do that by observing your customer. And this is an important point. You are not going, we think customers do this. Mm. Okay, so either you observe your customers or you get them involved and you get them to tell you what their journey is. You don't write down what you think the customer journey is. Uh, you get your customers to do that or you watch them doing it. Does that make sense, Ryan? I'm, I'm conscious I don't want to rattle on about 50 million things without giving you a chance to get in edgeways as usual. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, from my perspective, if we were to think about kind of the theory of journey mapping and why people do it, I do worry that a lot of firms get too in the weeds on their customer journey yeah. and worry too much about kind of the specifics of it. If we think about why we do journey mapping, one of the big reasons is to alleviate blind spots within the team. Yeah. Once we map out the journey, we start to see, oh, we have all these ways that we interact or could interact with our customers and all of those things to find the experience. If we're doing all of that kind of internally based on our own logic, we are then eliminating the opportunity we have to actually learn something, right? To actually yeah. discover where those blind spots are. Because if they're blind spots, 
they will inherently not go into the journey map, right? So we, we do, we have to observe the customer, we have to get in their head, we have to see what they're doing so that we can make sure that we're not missing anything. Yeah, and another part I'd build into that, that part of that blind spot is um, seeing how the customer flits from channel to channel. Yes. So maybe starting off digitally, then calling the contact center, then, I don't know, going into the store, whatever it may be. But the danger is organizations, you get a marketing department just doing a journey map. Yeah. And they, they think the whole of the customer's journey is just when they're dealing with them, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and that's clearly wrong. Um, so that's another part of the blind spot. The other three aspects of this, so I said this first one was rational. Second one is emotional, to map the emotional part of the journey. So as you go through that journey, how is the customer feeling? And again, you should be asking the customer how they are feeling or looking at, again, if you looked at facial recognition, you can actually tell how the customer is feeling through micro expression. So you can even do that on a digital channel. The third aspect is that subconscious part of an experience. So trying to map what are the subconscious messages that the organization is, is giving off. So, you know, my favorite example is you go into a bank and they put pens on chains. And that tells you they don't trust you. So what are the subconscious messages that customers are receiving? And guess what? You should be asking the customer or trying to pull that information out with them through the use of different, not different technology. I was just about to say technology. One of the things we use, actually, I don't know if you're aware of this, Ryan. And in fact, let me just tell you the fourth one before I tell you this, that what I was just about to say. The fourth one is the whole area of is behavioral science, which is how do customers behave? So rational, emotional, subconscious, and the whole sort of the interpretation of behavioral science. What I was just about to say is one of the ways that we use to get into that more subconscious area is we use a, a process called projectives. Have you, have you ever come across that, right? Projective research techniques are, are known in my area too, uh, academic research. So we would get a load of magazines and we would ask customers to thumb through the magazine and to pick out an image that they think is representative of either that part of the journey or the customer journey. And we would then ask them to explain to us why they think it's representative of that journey. And it's really amazing what people say. And it's so rich in the, those subconscious aspects as you delve down through questioning why somebody's said what they've said, basically. And you really get into that emotional subconscious area. Yeah, sometimes if you distract people by not asking them a direct question, but instead an indirect question, yeah. it can be something as simple as how would an average customer respond to this? Not you, but an average person. That allows people to kind of step outside of themselves a little bit. Or doing something really indirect, like pictures from a magazine. I, I uh, had some colleagues who did consulting work with a branch of the U.S. military, and they're trying to figure out what made people re-enlist versus leave the service. Uh, and they used a projective technique, which is ask them w what animal best represented yes. service in the military. And they found a real strong predictor where people who re-enlisted 
saw the the military as being an, some kind of aggressive predator animal, like a, a lion or an eagle, and people who didn't listed animals that were beasts of burden, so like right. donkeys or mules or cows, right. and allowed them to kind of get outside of of themselves and see things from a different perspective. Those types of techniques, there's there's a number of other different techniques that you can use as well, but I'm, I'm conscious of time, so I want to get on and go through some of other, other Anna's points. So my first bit of advice, Anna, for me would be journey mapping is not the answer. It's one of the enablers, and there are a number, to the answer, okay? But Anna also talked about changing the organization for it to become more customer-centric. Yeah, we did a couple of podcasts on this, which we'll put links in the show notes, probably a couple of months ago now, where we talked about uh, my second book was called Revolutionize Your Customer Experience. And based upon that, we've done research and there are nine areas that affect your customer experience, things like, and this is looking internally, by the way. So looking at the internal organization, because what you do internally affects the experience that you give your customers. So areas like people, uh, leadership, uh, marketing, measurement, channels, how you deal with expectation. I won't bore you with the whole nine areas because I guess uh, a number of you would have already listened to this. And then you can categorize people into four areas. Are they naive, transactional, enlightened, and natural? So when you say categorize people, you mean categorize the organization? I apologize. Yeah, yeah. thanks, mate. Um, uh, that guy. Hey, listen, that was continuous improvement. Well done. It was not. It was me <laughs> correcting you, which I've been doing all the time. That's very true. That's very true. Let you know I pay attention when you talk. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So yeah, four areas where you can effectively go. Okay, our organization is naive, which is effectively. You know, you don't really care about customers or you're transactional, which is, well, you do care about customers, but you tend to treat them as a you're a transaction. Enlightened is you recognize that there's more of an emotional subconscious part of an experience and natural means that you're naturally focused around the customers. Can you tie that back to Anna's question about journey mapping then? So what would be a naive approach to journey mapping and what would be a natural approach to journey mapping? That's a good question, mate. A transactional approach to journey mapping would be one where you don't even consider how the customer is feeling. A natural approach to journey mapping would be where you consider rational, emotional, subconscious, and psychological. Let me make that practical as well for Anna, because I know that that was one of her questions. When you look at it practically, And you started saying, okay, well, how is the customer coming into this experience? Have you thought about, well, what's the reason that they're coming into this experience? We did some work years ago with a mobile phone company, and we found that in the lost and stolen process, you had one type of person that was phoning the uh, lost and stolen for their mobile phone who was feeling stupid because they'd left their phone in the back of a taxi, okay? Mm -hmm. And then we had a different type of person who were phoning in uh, who had just been mucked and their kids were at home and it was 11 o'clock at night. 
So you can imagine the emotional way that you would look at that is clearly much more enlightened and natural. Um, whereas a transactional company wouldn't even think about asking the question, how do you feel coming in? Or even interpreting, thinking, you know, they would just pick it up as, I've got a phone call from a customer that says lost and stolen. The first thing I have to do is I have to ask them what their account number is. Right. That's the very first question. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. We Another one we did years ago was um, well, quite a famous one, was that we were asked by an insurance company to look at the journey of making a claim on their car, okay? So what they did was they gave us a car and we had to crash the car. And when we crashed the car, we ended up having interesting conversations about, well, how can you crash a car safely? And then we thought, I, th- I know what we'll do. We'll reverse it into the wall outside the office. And then we thought, well, what happens if the wall falls down? We better not do that. So we ended up going up to this forest near us. We got environmentally friendly and we reversed it into a tree stump. Okay. And then we phoned the insurance company. And the first question they said was, what's your policy number? That was the very first question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And clearly we were in the middle of a bloody forest. <laughs> we haven't got our <laughs> policy with us. Yeah. But that is typical of a transactional approach. Yeah. Right. Again, and you've got me on a run now. Um, the, the next thing that happened was in that instance was a low loader turned up to take the car away. Okay. The guy loaded it on the car and we realized that he hadn't given us any form of receipt. Okay. We said to him, could you give us a receipt? And he said, I don't have any receipts. And then he leaned across he grabbed a McDonald's wrapper. <laughs> he he ripped the McDonald's wrapper up, okay, and wrote on this greasy McDonald's wrapper and said, there's your receipt with his phone number on. He was a third-party contractor. He wasn't part of the experience. And then what happened was he then turned around and said, I need to take you home. And we said, actually, we don't want to go home. We want to go back to the office where we live actually 100 miles away, but the office is only six miles away. Uh, so could you take us to the office? And he went, no. Nah. He said, I have to take you home. We went, no, nah, six miles away versus 100 miles. And we had a 10-minute conversation about that. Again, the point I'm trying to make is all those things are transactional. It's written in a policy. There's no thought about the customer, etc. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like that he was willing to follow that policy, but the receipt got written on a, on a McDonald's. Yeah, forever. well, I tell you what, and, and this, again, is a tip, Anna, for you. Because when you do this type of stuff, we actually took that in to the CEO and the board and showed them what had happened. This was back in the day where we used to use pens and record all the interaction and stuff like that with the permission of the the company, obviously. But you could actually then play this back. And there is nothing more powerful than playing back these bloody stupid things that organizations put customers through. I remember in this recording is actually on our website. Our client then says on our website, he said, you know, the whole exec put their heads in their hands and <laughs> people were saying, I don't believe what we're doing to our customers. So you want to get some traction, get a McDonald's wrapper. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I will say before we let this go, much as we might make fun of this situation, actually the, the first draft of the Declaration of Independence was written on a McDonald's receipt. Not a lot of people know that. <laughs> um, so there's, there's a tradition there. Underneath the golden arches, yeah. 
How are you going to grow your market when everyone is competing on the same things? What are your customers' unmet needs in your market? What drives and destroys most value for you? And what are you going to do first? Since 2005, we've been helping organizations answer these questions. Our unique discovery tool, the Emotional Signature, will change the way that you look at your market. Let's have an informal conversation on how we may be able to help you. To set this up, simply go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. And we look forward to talking to you. The other part I wanted to, to raise here was, and I'm not going to spend hours talking about this, but Anna, you talked about change. Okay. And this again, we throw that sentence around or that word around so easily, but it's obviously so difficult to do. Okay. The best person I know on this is Kotler. And he's done a eight step process for change. We'll put this in the show notes. Okay. Uh, but let me just read you through those eight steps for leading change. So one, create a sense of urgency. Okay, you've got to create a reason why you're doing this. Two, build a guiding coalition. So you've got to get people around the organization to buy into it and get people represented. Three, form a strategic vision and initiatives. So define where you're going. And the key part here for me would be, what's the experience that you're trying to deliver? What are you trying to change? You're trying to change from what? to what yeah four enlist a volunteer army five enable actions to remove barriers okay and there'll be a lot of barriers six generate short-term wins you need those to keep the momentum going seven sustain acceleration don't just give up after six months and think you've done it all you've got to keep that going and then finally institute the change And that, for me, Ryan, starts to talk about the habits. So if you think of it, people have got habits and organization have got habits at the beginning, and you need to change the habits of the organization, and you then need to install new habits in the organization for that change to take effect. Anybody who's tried to change a habit, an exercise or an eating habit knows how hard it is and how much sustained effort it takes. And so I like that framing because if we're going to try to change the habits of an organization, we should expect it will be at least as hard as changing personal habits, if not harder, kind of plan for that. Yeah, absolutely. And change is difficult. It's the most difficult thing, as we all know. The other thing I liked about Kotler's list is it's mostly preparation. Change comes at the end of that list. If you're going to succeed, most of the success in changing organizations is laying the proper groundwork and and motivating and forming a coalition. All that stuff happens before the change. Yeah, and the sense of urgency is, in my view, one of the key bits because the danger is, is is if the organization's doing really well and you've got lots of business coming in, that's actually the worst. Ironically, it's one of the best times to change from a sustainability perspective going forward. But it's actually one of the most difficult times to change because people turn around and go, why in the hell do we need to change? We're doing fine, thanks. Two other areas that Anna spoke about that I want to get to, which are really important. One is she said she doesn't want CX to be, customer experience to be a soft and fluffy thing. 
and we've obviously spoken about emotions. This is the area that over the last 20 years I've not struggled with. This is but one of the biggest things that I've had to had push back on. And this is how we've dealt with it successfully and, and we've clearly done it to just be around 20 years later <laughs> shows that we've been doing it. The irony is that emotions, whilst customers are feeling emotions, they're feeling emotions because of things that people have done or not done or expectations have been built that haven't been either built properly or managed properly or expectations have been exaggerated. So what do I mean by that? Uh, Let's just pick up that last point. If you tell a customer that their product or service is going to be delivered next week and it's not, you're going to get some irate customers. Yeah, And guess what? Those irate customers have an emotion. If you say your call's important to them and you keep them waiting on the phone for 20 minutes before you answer it, it shows it's not. (laughs) Yeah. The point I'm making is what people say and do evoke emotions. And therefore, to make it not a soft and fluffy thing, you need to recognize that. And the key then for me is two things. One is you need to measure it. Okay. So if you are trying to make your customers feel trust, cared for, and valued, for instance, or trust, cared for, and appreciated, okay, what are the actions that you need to take to make the customer feel that way? So what do you need to say and do that will make a customer trust you? And those can be hard things like, You need to do what you say you're going to do. You need to return the phone calls when you say you're going to return them. You need your deliveries to turn up when you say that they're going to turn up. And those, again, are hard things. They're not soft and fluffy things. Does that make sense? Yeah. So even if emotions seem like soft and fluffy things, they lead to very concrete changes within the organization, concrete actions that generate those emotions. Yes. Absolutely. The the interesting bit for me is that sometimes it's what people don't do rather than what they do do. I always find it amusing when I say do do. I don't yeah, know why. Yeah, me too. <laughs> sometimes what people don't do that is actually equally as interesting as what they do do. Or what is done. Oh, what um, is done. If you want to yeah, speak the Queen's English properly. <laughs> yeah, like you do. Yeah. <laughs> The interesting bit there is you've therefore got to find out what customers are expecting. And again, go back to the projective stuff and you know other techniques. You've got to get under skin of what customers expect. Not many customers say to you, I want you to appreciate my business. Yeah. But you know what they do? Not many customers would say to you, I want you to care for me as a person. But you know they do? So there's lots of things that are in our society and everything else that are unsaid. And we need to, you need to get underneath that to truly get into what customers mean. And, and, And again, that is the difference between transactional and enlightened. A transactional company wouldn't get into those things. 
and therefore wouldn't even recognize that the customer is feeling an emotion and therefore the customer ends up leaving. But an enlightened company would recognize that they're causing them a problem and that's another interesting part. Well, last part on this section and then we're going to move on to some practical things. The other thing I would definitely do, Anna, is you've got to measure the ROI. You've got to measure the return and you've got to do that before you start any journey mapping. You've got to measure. So let's assume that you're trying to get customers to feel trust, cared for and appreciated. Then you should measure what those things are now before you do any journey mapping. And then you should do the journey mapping and you should train the people on it and blah, 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 blah. And then you need to be measuring it all the way along. So you can prove to your bosses that this stuff is working. That's great advice. A lot of times we assume that whatever action we're going to take is going to be so immediate and so large, have such a large effect, that it'll be obvious afterwards whether it worked or not and by how much. And and that is very rarely the case. The, the world is very noisy. So unless we set up beforehand to make sure that we're measuring and unless we've established a benchmark, a lot of times successes can be encoded as failures and vice versa because we're, we're not measuring things accurately. So yeah, that that's another thing that has to be planned. Here's a question for you. So one of the interesting thing is for me is that Whenever I've had an experience, say I'm dealing with a cable company, all right, and we all know they're not very good. Well, I don't think they are anyway. And you have a good experience. You then go, hmm, that was a good experience. I wonder if they're changing. And then you have the next experience and it's not very good. And you go, no, they haven't. I just met somebody that was good. But the interesting bit for me is, and I don't know if there's any science around this, How many times do you have to have like a good customer experience before you start going, actually, my opinion is now changing. It wasn't just a flash in the pan. There's clearly something that's changing here. And it can either be positive or negative, you know, good experiences that start to go bad over a period of time. Is there anything off the top of your head that's like that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's not like a number I can give. It's not like there's four new experiences that are going to change your impression. That'll vary with a lot of factors. But your general kind of hypothesis, I think, is accurate that it's not that each new experience we update immediately. Part of the reason these things are sticky is because we interpret new experiences to be similar to what we're expecting them to be. So we can have like one outrageously bad experience, especially if the experience is very emotional, and that can change things immediately. But if we're talking about kind of the average everyday run-of-the-mill experience, it can take a lot of those to change our overall impression and our expectations going forward because of those memory biases that you're, you're noting. The issue that comes out of that then, Anna, is you need to set your boss's expectation and we dealt with a water utility a little while ago. And I always remember that the water utility, the average times that a customer would phone into the call center was once every seven years. You can imagine if you change your experience, it's going to take seven years for the numbers to start to change, basically. The point I'm trying to make here is set your boss's expectation that it may take three, six months, depending on how many times the customer interacts with you before they start to see a change. 
Last thing, and probably this is the most important one, is what are the practical steps? So let me give you my practical steps, Ryan, and then I'll come over to you. Great. So these are sort of strategic things, but I like to believe they're practical, and I'll try and give you some guidance going down. First thing is focus on the fact that you need to drive value. The reason that your organization is doing this is because they want to get more loyal customers, they want to get more revenue, they want to upsell, cross-sell, whatever. So you need to define the things that drive or destroy value for your organization. And we've spoke about before the methodology we use as an emotional signature. Again, I'll put a link for that in the show notes. The key here is you could spend all your time and effort redoing all the journeys. And if you're not focusing on the things that customers drive value from, then you're wasting your time. Second thing is you need to define what that experience is. We've talked about, so what's the change, what you're doing today, what you want it to do. As I've said on this podcast, let's assume it would be something like trust, cared for and appreciated. So that's now set the strategy. Now you can start to do your journey mapping. Okay. So now you start to go, okay, well, how would trust manifest itself in this experience here? How would care for manifest itself in the experience here and that's obviously the practical things third thing is you then need to train your people on how to implement that journey mapping okay so you need to train people on trust cared for and appreciated so whichever the salesperson is you've got in front of you they need to understand how to evoke trust cared for and appreciated you need to do that in the call centers you need to do that with the marketing teams And again, all of this is on our website. We'll put a link into the training again. And then finally, you need to look at the measures. You need to be designing new measures. And guess what? If you're doing a measurement, again, you need to do measure, trust, cared for, and valued, appreciated. And again, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, which will give you a lot more information. I just don't want to go on for the next four hours on this topic now. I hope that's helpful, Anna. Ryan, your thoughts on practical steps? That's a great list, Colin. I will, in terms of practical advice, I also will lean a little bit towards the theory because I think that that can make things more practical. What I've seen over and over again in business is that businesses can fetishize tools. Uh, And I'm not accusing Anna or her organization of doing that. The fact that she's asking the question suggests she's thinking about this in the right way. But, you know, whether it's net promoter score, whether it's a journey map, I've seen organizations like treat that as if that's the end point. I think this comes around to what you were saying at the beginning, Colin. Remember that this is a tool that's designed to do something else. The goal is not to have a journey map. The goal is to have something that will solve a problem. So when we're creating our journey maps, keep in mind that we're looking to get customer insights out of this so that we can take specific actions. So we need to do things like start with our segmentation and targeting when we're developing a journey map. It's almost always the case that different segments that we're serving have different journey maps. I've seen organizations who will like develop 32 journey maps because that's all the different ways that their customers can potentially interact with them based on everything that they sell. But none of those 32 journey maps line up well with any of their six defined targets. So now they have six times 32 
different possibilities out there. And it just spins out of control as opposed to saying, all right, we've got these six segments. What on average is the path that each of them takes? And it may be that two or three of the segments take the same journey, or it may be that one segment potentially sometimes uses two different journeys to get there. But now we're already in a much more practical space. We haven't defined our journey maps in terms of just all of the behavioral variation. We've defined them in terms of understanding our target customers better and how we can serve them. So I would walk into this with that goal in mind. What is it we're trying to get out of our journey maps? And constantly check back with that as you're you're developing your journey maps in this process. Is this going to help us understand our target customers better? If not, we need to stop what we're doing and, and reassess. If it is, great, then let's plow ahead. I'm glad you brought that up, Ryan, because segmentation is is vital because the reality is is that you may have one one journey, but you could have five or six different segments. So you actually have got five or six different journey maps for that one overall journey. So it could be the onboarding experience, but actually you've got five or six different segments. So therefore that journey map needs to be based around those five different segments or five different versions of it, basically. Anna, I hope that has been of use to you. Let me say to everybody else, if you have a pickle, if you are in a pickle, if you wish to have sliced pickles, whatever pickle you want, (laughs) please just go onto our website, beyondphilosophy.com backslash pickle. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash pickle. You can either write into us or, as Anna's done, uh, record your message. And Ryan and I will be glad to pull it apart and hopefully help. So thanks very much for your time and we look forward to talking to you next week. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton, but it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.